Harry Belafonte died this week at the age of 96. Ten years ago, we had this conversation about the documentary Sing Your Song. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. Harry Belafonte was a singer, actor, and activist. In the 1950s, he had a breakthrough success with his album Calypso. He starred in films such as Carmen Jones and Island in the Sun, then created his own film production company. During that period, he threw himself into the civil rights movement and befriended Martin Luther King Jr., along with other Hollywood allies such as Sidney Poitier and Marlon Brando. Belafonte remained outspoken about human rights for the rest of his life. In 2013, I had this chance to interview him. It was two years after the publication of his memoir, My Song, and the release of a documentary about his life called Senior Song. The film is directed by Suzanne Rostock and produced by his daughter, Gina Belafonte. Harry and Gina joined me on stage in Newark, New Jersey, in front of a live audience at NJPAC for a screening hosted by the Montclair Film Festival. I'd never listened to this tape before, but the news of Belafonte's death made me crave to hear his voice again. This is an edited version. At the time we were speaking, Barack Obama was still president, Black Lives Matter wasn't yet a movement. Keep that context in mind. I started by asking Belafonte what made him want to tell his own story. The whole process was really initiated by uh, the death of a friend, uh, Marlon Brando. And when Marlon passed, uh, I was not only saddened at the fact that I'd lost a friend, but he took a great chunk of history with him. And I thought it was important for America to know uh, how many artists use their power as celebrities to be able to enhance the cause of uh, human rights and human struggle. And Marlon was deeply committed to that kind of social activism, with Native Americans in particular, certainly with the black community and the civil rights, etc. And when he passed away, I realized that everyone knew of Marlon as a great uh, actor, a great artist, that he had changed the landscape through a certain uh, approach that he had to acting that was very impacting on our culture, globally as well as uh, domestically. But nobody knew very much about him as an activist. And I thought it was important that uh, that part of his story be told. So what started off as a kind of an and investigating who I would make the alliance with and how we could tell the story. There was a parallel event taking place, and that was my daughter was uh, nagging me to death. <laughs> to, uh, gee, you gotta write something, Dad. You gotta leave it, you know, let, let the film, the idea. So I thought I'd kill two birds with one stone. Let's take a look at doing a film on art and activism using the profile of Marlon Brando and others to take a look at how artists interfaced 
with social need and development. And she came on board and we started to make the film. And eventually we, uh, very fortunate for us that we hooked up with Suzanne Rostock, who became our uh, premier editor, director. And uh, we then wound up. I interviewed, I don't, we had 800 hours of film. And uh, looking to pare this down into some manageable size became our task. And therein, Susan was, I think, just absolutely, she used her gift well to take a rather rambling story, fairly large, and bring it into a space that could do what the audience has just seen in this film. Although, quite frankly, I'd be happy to watch a six-hour version of, uh, of this film. Uh, Thank you. Sheena, let me ask you, uh, there's so much great archival footage that uh, your team uncovered uh, in this film, and it really, I think, speaks to the power of film to transport us back into, into time. Can you talk about the process of uh, of finding that archival footage? What was your happiest discoveries? And, and were there things that you wanted to find and couldn't? Well, first of all, let me thank you, Tom, and the Montclair Film Festival, and NJ Pack and John Schreiber for having us and letting us bring our film uh, to this audience. Um, we had actually an incredible researcher by the name of Helen Weiss who uncovered lots of that footage that most have never seen b before uh, in the basement of people's homes in the south in dusty attics. She's just one of those people who really looks under rocks to find amazing gems. And um, so Su this was a colleague of Suzanne's who she's worked with before. Um, I think that one of the things that happened for us was we came upon a moment where Harry very much wanted to have more of the indigenous American movement uh, represented in the film, especially his connection with um, the, the Pine Ridge Reservation incident that he was so AIM. committed to, AIM, with, uh, with Marlon Brando. Um, and we couldn't find any footage, newsreel footage, except for the little bit that was there, that really showed them together. And um, one day I was in the warehouse um, that Harry and my mother had kept for quite some time, and I saw all these photographs. And I thought, well, maybe there's something we can do. And I said, Suzanne, Suzanne, look, we have some photographs. And she was like, just give them to me. I'll do something magical with them. And then she took all those like sort of photographs and put them together so it almost seemed as if it was moving footage. Um, but Suzanne and, and Helen were really in charge of that. And they would bring pieces of it to Harry. And Harry would sit with them. I usually would just get versions of the film in incremental moments where I could give notes and things like that during the editing process. But the uncovering of that material was really Suzanne and Ellen. Harry, I have questions I, I want to ask about your activism, but I want to first ask a film question, because we are a film festival uh, after all. And I was struck in, in the film where you describe in the 1950s that you started this independent film company, Harbell. Uh, when we think about independent film, we, also, we often think of that as something that started in the 1980s with Spike Lee and Jim Jarmusch. And, uh, but you were, uh, you, you were doing this in the 1950s. Can you talk about what that meant to start an independent film company in the 1950s and, and, and what happened to it? 
what had happened to, to, to me and, 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 and Sidney Poitier, the two of us, I'm, I'm, there was another young man, James Edwards, another black actor who was our age. And he was uh, the first one out of the, out of the gate, so to speak, as black actors, young, uh, non-stereotypic looking. None of us had a, a docile personality. We were not subservient. Uh, we weren't making jokes every three minutes, and we were not uh, uh, trying to, to uh, I think, modify the pain that we were feeling as men uh, in an America that was so unyielding. But when James Edwards and Sidney Poitier and myself stepped into the space that we found open to us, the question was, how do we change the traditional view of Hollywood in relationship to black life, black individuals, and especially as it uh, had portrayed black men? Most of the times when you saw black men, you saw uh, men in servitude, men in, as butlers, men as uh, intellectually uh, inferior or absent of culture and taste and uh, thought. And when we took to the gate, we decided that we would move differently. In that process, we still were at the behest of the studios. Everything had to be uh, done through their filter through their perception, through the way they saw it. And it was either their way or no way. So I lived that way for a while. Uh, James unfortunately died very young, just at the beginning of his life as an actor. And uh, Sidney inherited a lot of space to have to continually be not only an actor, but also a spokesperson for the race. And uh, I felt that as long as we were hemmed in to that studio space and under uh, that constant uh, authority, that what we needed to do was to become far more adventurous. Take the bite, take the hit, take the cost of trying to make a film that would embody uh, content and ideas as we thought we could best uh, perform. And uh, that was what started this in the idea of making a, a film company. Now, none of this could have been done without the assistance of many of my white colleagues and very dear friends who stepped into the space and loved the adventure. The first film that I did, which was uh, Odds Against Tomorrow, could never have been done without Robert Wise, who was at the apex of his career at that time, winning Academy Awards, doing some of the most imaginative films of the period. And then we had people like Robert Ryan and Shelley Winters who used their power and their profile to step to the table to give this uh, interracial story uh, the kind of support that it would need to get through uh, the hurdles put before us by Hollywood and the studio system. So it was really motivated by that thought and that idea if we took more responsibility and more of the, uh, the danger of filmmaking on ourselves as our own personal burden, we might then be able to say things in a richer way than we were required to 
constantly look at when the studio sent us scripts. And then did you run into some financial realities that, that uh, brought an end to the company? Yes, I ran into a very severe uh, reality. <laughs> uh, I'm still paying the bill today. I really got a very sobering taste of uh, what it's like to be in business, what it's like to deal with banks, what it's like to go through a system where almost all of culture has been required to subvert itself. Because if you are to achieve a certain level of success as an artist in this country, you are necessarily required to go through the filter of culture that's governed by banks and corporate power and institutions that say, we will select the kind of art we want to represent our social philosophies as well as our corporate philosophy. So uh, it wasn't too long outside of the studio system when corporate America uh, began to take over uh, the, the industry. All of a sudden we had an electronics company called Sony stepping into the picture business. We had Time Warner and uh, all the things that were going on with the studio buying up uh, real estate. and uh, It was a formidable moment. And uh, to do business with that kind of power base is not an easy journey. It still isn't. But uh, we got through. Unfortunately, the films that we did never really hit the highest cylinder of public attraction, public response. We got great critical acclaim for a lot of things that we did, but the pictures just never hit a certain stride in terms of public taste and the way in which we were promoted in our storytelling to the public. Thank God that now, for instance, more than ever before, uh, film festivals exist, which has given us a very, very powerful and critical outlet to reaching the public in a way that we could never reach if we were exclusively tied to just the studio exhibition systems, the way in which they present films in their theaters. Now they yield a little to us when we bring our festivals to cities and they play the game. But in the beginning, they saw festivals as very challenging to studio interest because it gave independent filmmakers an opportunity to speak to another style other than just the way the studio wanted it to be. I have a uh, question about the civil rights era. I have a part one question for you, Harry, and then I want to uh, ask Gina a version of this. Um, you talk in the film about uh, your attraction to nonviolence and, um, and your work with Martin Luther King. You know, there, 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 there came uh, a faction of, of the civil rights movement um, afterwards who rejected nonviolence and, uh, and, and felt that that wasn't enough to, uh, to achieve their aims. I wonder how you reacted uh, uh, to that. I was in my earliest commitment to the social movement because I always have to point out to people that I'm, I'm not an artist who became an activist. I was an activist who became an artist. And 
uh, in that activism, uh, my path led from Eleanor Roosevelt and Paul Robeson and other icons of my youth who mentored me and befriended me. Uh, but I had also been in the Second World War and had taken great exception to the way in which black servicemen were being treated upon returning. And I too had an edge of anger and frustration with the way in which the system were treating its citizens, the system was treating its citizens of, of color. And uh, I too felt that uh, our rights and our freedom as citizens in this country should be acquired or attained by any means necessary, which was an idea that was put forth uh, philosophically by Malcolm X, who was one of the great icons of the period, who uh, found no, no uh, inclination to not integrate uh, violence as a necessary tool to our mission, to our liberation efforts. I, however, being deeply committed to Dr. King and having become uh, one of his disciples, began to think more fully at not only the, uh, the, the moral concept of nonviolence, but what it was as a political tool, as it was as an instrument, as a tactic, as a, as a style. And I found that even in the struggle itself, there was much more to be gained by applying uh, the deeper nuances and philosophy of nonviolence than there was to constantly uh, deferring to the fact that we would have to pick up rifles and guns and have a, a shootout with our adversaries. And I, until this day, come to know and feel very strongly that the grace that fell upon America and the American process was the whole idea of making change through nonviolence. I think even now that philosophy is more applicable uh, than it has ever been before. And it was what Gandhi had done, Mahatma Gandhi, in, in laying out before us what it was possible for a people to do in the face of uh, oppression from the state. And with that, uh, I felt that nonviolence was the course I should follow. Uh, I sat with Dr. King in many of uh, very uh, rewarding moments to, to deal with strategy for goals that we had set for ourselves. And reaching into the womb of culture was a necessary component because it was the only force that could articulate where we were going as a movement and as a people and as a nation in a way that was not edited and was not going through the filter of those who controlled uh, media, communication, because you only know the story that the editor of any paper wants you to know. That's the power of the press. And uh, the same thing of, is true of television and other means of communication. Paul Robeson constantly said that artists are the gatekeepers of the truth. And uh, that always hit me as a rather uh, powerful observation and a rather profound one. And that yes, 
we have the capacity to tell the truth because of what we do in manipulating art, the language of culture. Also, the fact that uh, added to the idea that uh, uh, being the gatekeepers of truth, uh, we also realize that uh, civilization's radical voice is the arts. The arts is the radical voice of civilization. And through integrating art and many people who supported our movements in Marlin and where this film indulges a lot of its storytelling, uh, there are celebrities weaved throughout, not just because they were celebrities, but what the power of their celebrity achieved within the frame of our movement. Gina, I want to ask you a question about the civil rights movement as someone of a, of a different generation. I know when I look at this film, I, uh, I see a sense of urgency, an organization that existed in, uh, in the 1950s and 60s that, uh, that, that I don't always feel uh, today, even though we have um, our own insurmountable uh, problems uh, today. I wonder, as, as someone who you know, lives in, in this legacy uh, directly, um, uh, how you think of that, how you think of the challenges that, uh, that the next generation has to, to uh, recapture some of that urgency in organization? Wow, thanks for the question, and I'm hoping you'll chime in too with the answer. Uh, <laughs> I always defer to his wisdom. Um, well, I think a lot of things about that. I think, first of all, the playing field is rather more diverse in the world of social justice. Um, no pun intended, but it was very black and white uh, in the 60s. Um, and then other movements started to, I think, gain more courage out of the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the, the, the gay LGBTQT movement, um, uh, Native Americans. I mean, I think that out of the civil rights movement, people saw that liberation was possible because as as my father often says, that of all of the things that the civil rights movement aimed to achieve, they won. They never lost any of the battles. Um, but now I think also with the environment as a, a, and animal rights, and there's, I think everyone has an opportunity to find something that they can align themselves with where there is need for education and justice and liberation. Um, at the end of the film, we have a section that is dedicated to the Gathering for Justice where all of these young people gathered together. And that is really the space in which I, moving this legacy forward, reside around the issues of incarceration, youth incarceration in particular, and gang intervention. And there are many organizations um, hundreds and hundreds of organizations in this country um, that are out there that need help and that need support that deal with these specific issues. So I think that in some ways the civil rights movement is like ongoing and forever um, and there's many ways to become a part of it and to participate in it. Um, so I think the, the, the playing field has just broadened. I think, if I may add to that, that uh, look, Racism is alive and very, very active in America. 
the idea that we're in a post-racialist moment is uh, is beyond humor. Uh, it's 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 such a a careless and a very calculated uh, uh, part of our vocabulary, mostly uh, revealed by media and pursued by media. The truth of the matter is, is that all of those things that were quite evident that we fought against in the 40s and 50s, starting long before that period with what we took on when we took on the Second World War. It wasn't just that there was a mighty fascist army on the horizon that we had to, to, to uh, resist and defeat. It was also a philosophy, both on democracy and philosophy on race. Hitler was about pure Aryan existence, that beyond the blonde, blue-eyed, uh, genetic creature, all else in the, in the universe was inferior. And uh, we all had a vested interest in the, how popular that philosophy was emerging, not only throughout Germany and Europe, but capturing the imagination of, of uh, places all over the world, and America was no small player. We had these segregationist laws. Apartheid in South Africa learned how to design its own system based upon the laws that we had been practicing here and had created here through the abolition of slavery and the Civil War and then what happened and how the, the nation began to design how it would legally control the black people who were being released from the chains of slavery. So that in the 1940s and 50s when we fought against segregation, it was the bedrock of Southern philosophy. It was at the behest of states. These were ironclad rules and laws that you could not sleep in a certain place if you were black. You could not be seen in company with white people. Little, not just gender, just, just, I mean, it wasn't about male, female. It was about mixing with anybody who was white. Those laws were stacked. And when we sought to eradicate those laws, we didn't have the right to vote in much of America. So when we, uh, we, we, we confronted all that and we won, the Southern forces that were the, were the ones who were defeated, they didn't go away. They were very angry with the Kennedys. They were very angry with the Democratic Party because they felt class betrayal. They felt racial betrayal. Uh, they were very, very angry. And they were mostly Democrats. And when they decided to uh, rebel against the party and against the history, they then became Republicans. And what we are now looking at uh, in much of the contentions that we're feeling in politics and voting and the insanity that's going on right now is a direct result of uh, the emergence of the Tea Party, a very conservative force, which is a new codification for the same mentality, the same racists that ran the country. So that, I'll put a cap on it, uh, today it doesn't, the, the images that are clearly uh, that which has replaced the laws of segregation is now the laws of, that we are coming up against in criminal justice. The United States of America has the largest prison population in the world. And the, and the largest 
number of uh, people caught up in that culture are people of color. And the largest number of people of color in that are black. And the largest number of black people you'll find is a large number of young people. The largest number of black prisoners in prison are made up of young men who are 30 and below, well below. We even have children at the age of five. So those people say, well, it's not like it was back in the 50s. You people had a better time of it than we do. I think you're absolutely right because everything was quite visible. Now all oh, this is underground. Now you go through so much fighting these ghosts. And a lot of people have come to say, even the civil rights movement is a thing of the past. Well, civil rights is never a thing of the past. Uh, the pursuit and the hunt for the utopian democracy is forever forcing and requiring the citizens be alerted to what's happening to human rights and civil rights. And it's a constant and should be a constant. That's what democracy is about. You stay vigilant and protected and keep our rights alive and open up the arena to further rights. Because once you blink, there'll be someone to take that away from you and to put you back into a place of service. The event was coming to a close. A woman in the audience asked Belafonte, where are today's leaders? Where is the Nelson Mandela or the Martin Luther King Jr.? I'm very glad, if for nothing else today, than the fact that I had the opportunity for you to raise the question and to raise the, and then to reveal the thought you just revealed. I think the greatest myth that we have to really get off the table is the fact that we don't have leaders. We have leaders everywhere. And if you look back at uh, the litany of names that you just read off, where were they before they became who they are? Or who we know them to be? Dr. King was a little preacher stuck off somewhere in a village in, the, in Alabama who didn't want the job, who didn't want the gig, who didn't want to step into this social fray. You look at a bunch of young men and women today all over this country who sit in our halls of uh, legislative law, halls, in our governments, in our state, all over the place. If, if, if you go back and you take a look at John Lewis and you take a look at Julian Bond and you take a look at Andy Young and you take a look at Jesse Jackson, all of these were young men below 20. They were younger than 20. Uh, Julian Bond was 18. Diane Nash, 17 and a half with a child. John Lewis, 19. Jesse Jackson, 19. A litany of people who took over, even the Kennedys, were relatively young as men when they stepped into the political fray. And all of these people whom we were yearning for that became our leaders came out of the rank and file of American experience and American existence. Some came from the church, some came from universities, some came out of working class uh, places, shops. Most of the most powerful leaders we had were women who came out of the domestic movement, Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker. And I think 
that we have all of those leaders deeply rooted in our daily experiences. I talk to young men and women in prison and in the anti uh, in the anti-prison movement, in uh, in the justice movement, who are very young, extremely bright, many who have graduated from Ivy League colleges and have gone back into community work. The system that I spoke about earlier that is keeping us in this mindless place called the media and those who control it informs you to the limit that you think. Uh, but there are leaders, many leaders, who are there, and I think they will step into the space. That was Harry Belafonte and his daughter, Gina Belafonte, recorded in May 2013 in Newark, New Jersey, at NJPAC as part of the Montclair Film Festival. We were talking about the documentary Sing Your Song and his memoir, My Song. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan and web designer Cross Strategy. Welcome to Bella Racklin, who joins as our marketing manager. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. I hope you'll follow our Instagram at Pure Nonfiction. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. <laughs>